Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. And uh, I thought this morning would be kind of fun because uh, the title of the sermon is Journey to a King. And uh, I had the privilege uh, the last uh, couple, uh, a couple of years ago for the second time to be able to go to Israel. And uh, we got to go into Bethlehem, which some tour groups don't like to go in there because of it being Palestinian controlled. But uh, I want to show you a couple of pictures before we begin, because I think it might help uh, clarify some things in your own mind and thinking as to uh, what the manger actually looked like. Have you noticed here, it wasn't really a wooden cradle that somebody built, some carpenter built. This, this was pretty much a typical feeding trough that they were using back in the day, where it would also be able to hold water as well as grain or feed. And so this is probably more what Jesus was actually born into. There's another picture here of the inside this is, uh, I believe, the Church of the Nativity. And uh, if you'll go around Israel, you'll realize that a lot of Catholic churches are actually built over the shrines of where they believe where some of these events actually took place in Scripture. This is in the Church of the Nativity, and it's kind of more in a cave-like environment. And perhaps something was honed out within the framework uh, uh, somewhere in, inside the cave where there was a cradle that was actually used, which looked like that, that trough. So just, just a little bit of some uh, pictorial issues there that you can kind of grab onto to kind of maybe bring you to Bethlehem as, as uh, we were able to. It was kind of an uh, interesting trip because there are Palestinian soldiers everywhere with rifles, and um, we, uh, we had a, a great time in Bethlehem, by the way. It was really a good time, but it was a little strange because we, we felt pretty awkward around there when we were in Palestinian-controlled territory. But anyways, that's Bethlehem, and uh, I want to now move to uh, chapter 2 of the book of Matthew because we're going to look at the Magi today through their eyes and, and what they dealt with. Now, these, these guys were, were interesting characters. Um, we traditionally have sung this song for Christmas, right? We three kings of Orient are. You know, uh, that's pretty bogus, actually, to be honest with you. In fact, I remember when I was a child, we used to sing, we three kings of Orient are tried to smoke a rubber cigar. It was loaded. It exploded. And we sang Silent Night after that. So it was, it was kind of a... A fun thing, and we now I look back and I realize that we weren't making fun of something that was actually a reality because these guys were not kings. Uh, they were called magi, and these magi were uh, astronomers who were extremely well-educated. They uh, were educated in mathematics and science. Um, they were astronomers. They were astrologers, and some of the wisest men in the kingdom who were looked upon for advisors for kings. So we don't know where these guys actually came from. We do know they came from the east. Some say the Orient. Probably not. Some say from Persia. That's where most people agree these guys came from. We don't know if there were three, two. We don't know if there were a dozen. Um, and uh, a lot. Of, there was one theory that I read this week that I thought was pretty valid where a guy was saying that he felt like they came from perhaps North Africa from Yemen and that territory because of the gold, frankincense, and more were, were all harvested in that particular area of the country. So who knows where these guys came from? But let's start in Matthew chapter 2, and we'll give a little idea of what the Magi dealt with, and hopefully we'll see some great applications for us tonight today. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, now King Herod, by the way, was probably one of the most ruthless kings ever to be in Jerusalem. He had wanted no competition whatsoever. In fact, there were various times in his path where he had actually family members murdered so that they would not have any access to the throne. This guy was a very jealous king who didn't want any competition whatsoever. So you need to know that. Well, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
It's fascinating here that they saw this star. It's interesting that God reached out to the Magi based upon what they understood was something relevant that they were studying. I mean, these are astrologers, these are astronomers, and to have a star be an indicator to them, that was really cool how God sort of relevantly saw that this would be a way to, to connect with these, these guys who were pagans. And by the way, they were Gentiles. Okay, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, to say the least, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because now he's bringing in all the religious leaders to get some advice here as to where this king would be born. These guys knew exactly where he was going to be born because they say in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. And then they quote scripture. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now get this, last week we talked about how the shepherds went in and they, they, they told everybody after they left and saw the Christ child about what they saw and everybody was amazed. Now I don't know if that information got to these guys, but either they were dumb, deaf, dumb and stupid and didn't hear the story or they knew that this was going to happen and, and they were in denial about this whole birth of, of the king. But what I see here is a group of guys who had tremendous biblical knowledge they knew all about scripture. They knew all about what the prophets were going to say, and yet they didn't get it. There was no reality in their lives. It didn't touch their hearts. It didn't transform them. So here's verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, what he was trying to do is connect the dots here to kind of get an idea of how old perhaps this child was at this particular time. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Not. I mean, he was going there. He wanted to kill this child. He didn't want any competition. So he was using the Magi to kind of get to where Jesus was actually being born. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. This must have been an incredible experience for them because up to the, uh, up that point, all the stars had remained in place, but this one star kept moving. And that was what was really intriguing with these guys. And when it hung right over the place where Jesus was, it was fascinating to them. They um, went ahead and, and um, I'm sorry, verse nine, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now on coming to the house, Remember, you know, the old tradition has been to see the three wise men, three, because we, we think there were three because there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know how many there were. But they, uh, they were not coming to the manger. They were coming to a home. This is later on. This is when Jesus was just a tad older, okay? So they came to the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and what do they do? They bow down and worship him. I mean, they immediately felt that they were in the presence of this king, this royalty, and so they bow down and worship this little baby. These guys were Gentiles. These guys were not necessarily believers. These guys were astrologers. They were into sorcery. They were into all kinds of things. But as soon as they saw Jesus, man, they were on their knees. They were bowing down. And so what do they do? Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. 
These are very expensive gifts. Some people believe that they do represent certain things symbolically, and some say that the gold represents royalty here because they were in the presence of the king. This incense or this frankincense was used as an aroma spice to, to, to bring freshness and purity. It was also a healing device. And so uh, some think that this represented the healing that Christ brought and the righteousness of Christ in, in, into uh, play here. And then finally, the, fr- the myrrh was also used for um, embalming uh, a dead body. And so it was uh, also a foreshadowing of the death of Christ. But regardless of that, they brought good stuff. They didn't stop at Kmart at the Blue Light Special and bring a bunch of uh, stuff. And what's fascinating to me, uh, this past week, my wife showed me a Facebook picture of the wives. What if the wives of the wise men came and saw the baby? They would have probably bought pampers and, and formula and things like that, okay? Just a side thing. Anyways, the point is they brought some very, very expensive gifts because they were what? They were in the presence of royalty. It's really critical that we remember that as we think about what God wants to speak to us about today. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. God uses another dream again, like he used uh, before with Joseph and with Mary. And, 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 and now he's, he's communicating again to these guys saying, don't go, don't listen to the king. Get out of town. Don't tell him where you're going and just leave. And so they obey exactly what the dream had told them to do. Smart, smart thinking. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Isn't it fascinating here how God provides these royal gifts to give Joseph and Mary a stake, if you will, to be able to go into Egypt and survive and be provided for? Isn't that great how God provides? God provided for them. So they got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Now, Herod died very soon after this. And you remember what Herod did is he was so furious that the Magi had left. He declared every baby that was under two years of age, any male baby, to be killed. And it was a horrible, horrible time in the city of Jerusalem and in Bethlehem at that particular time. But the point is, is that Joseph took his family and they, they go to Egypt and flee to Egypt. We don't know how long they were in Egypt, perhaps maybe up anywhere from, they think, uh, from 40 days old, where Jesus is 40 days old after he'd been dedicated in the temple, to even up to maybe a few months that they stayed in Egypt and maybe even a year or so because Herod soon died after that. And I think it was poetic justice that God took Herod out at that point. So that gives you a little background. That gives you a little bit of a story about these magi, these guys who were extremely influential. They were not kings. The word magi comes from uh, out of that word magic. So they were into sorcery and other kinds of things. But what I see about these guys is really exciting when it comes to our own application and relevance. Here's what I mean. Number one is this. Jesus was born not just to be the savior, but the king of all people. You know, we're good as Christians. We're good with the fact that Jesus is our Savior, right? We, we like that because he, he, he came and he died for us so that we could go to heaven, so that we could have peace here on earth, so that we have hope. But when you start thinking about a king, that's a little different flavor because now we're talking about a, somebody who wants to rule and who wants to run our lives, and that's a little more intimidating. And I'm not sure we get it in, in America today. 
If we were to go to England or some other place where kings were consistently on thrones, if you will, and we understand a little bit more about that. But here in America, we're all a bunch of independent. We're a democratic system. Uh, You know, even the president, we don't totally respect. And so, you know, we don't know what it is to get down on our knees and worship a king. We we just don't have that a lot of times in our fabric in in, in the U.S., and I think one of these, this really important piece here is that these magi knew they were in the presence of a king. He was not only king of the Jews, but he was king of everybody. And so he, it's really fascinating to me how, how God brings not only the shepherds who are the lowlifes of society to the, to the cradle, but they also brings in Gentiles to be the next group of people to come in that was recorded to really see the presence of Christ. And the first thing they did, they bow down and they worship him as a king. I wonder if we don't do well at that. When's the last time you bow down and worshiped your king? Here's the second thought. God will often draw people to himself using relevant methods that they can relate to. See, what's really interesting about how God worked with these these magi is that they were into stars. They were into astronomy. And so they were also had apparently some knowledge of the fact that there was going to be this king that was going to be born in Bethlehem. So they may have studied the Torah. We we don't know what these guys knew or didn't know, but apparently there was some uh, concern about them as to about this king, and they wanted to pay homage to him. But the way God seemed to address it was to have a star appear to them. They could relate to that. I think it's really cool how God can do that in the lives of people. And I think, what better way to use a star with a bunch of astrologers, right? But could he do that with us today? I remember uh, years ago in my church down in Phoenix, we, we had what we kind of a philosophy called unleashing the church. And so what we said, we said, if you have a passion for something, if you have a, a heart for something, uh, I want you to consider using that as a, as a bridge to reaching people who have that same passion. And so one lady decided she loved quilting. And so she decided to start a quilting group. And by golly, those gals started inviting their friends who were quilters in their neighborhood. And there was 25 or 30 ladies that would meet every week and do quilting at our church. And, and oh, one lady would maybe have devotions. And we saw more ladies get involved in the church because of a quilting group. Why? Because it touched a passion where somebody could relate to. And all of a sudden, there were conversations around those quilting tables where the gals are starting to share about the Lord. We, we had another situation where, where uh, our children's pastor got this great idea because we have a ton of young moms in our church at that time. And, and, and we knew that because of the heat in Phoenix, that the best way to maybe reach moms was to take care of their kids in play groups. And so they started a thing called Tot Town in our community center. We had a big gym community center down there. And so we had over 300 children um, during the week in this menagerie of all these jump houses and Legos and all this kind of stuff. It was like a Disneyland for toddlers. And we saw more families come to the church and come to know Christ because we reached touched a nerve where they had a passion and a need and we bet that need. And I'm wondering if if we're missing something here 
in, in, in Prescott or in any church where we forget that we have passions. Yeah, it might be fishing, it might be hiking, it might be mountain biking, it, it, it just might be going for a walk, it might be uh, uh, any kind of hobby that you have. You know people, there are clubs in this town, there are places where you could maybe orchestrate an opportunity to reach out to somebody where it's relevant to them and then have the opportunity to intentionally share the gospel in that context. We, we don't think that way. I think it's, it's really critical that we understand that a lot of times the best way to reach somebody is to find out what their passion is and connect with them because it's my passion too, right? So God will often draw people to himself using relevant methods that they can relate to. Here's number three. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards, but if you're too arrogant to apply it, you will never be transformed. These, these Pharisees, these church leaders that Herod goes to, they know Scripture. They knew all the prophecies. They knew it backwards and forwards, and yet they were too doggone proud and arrogant to understand that perhaps the Savior was in their presence, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because they were too ignorant or too arrogant to respond to it. And how many times have I seen people say to me over and over again, over the years of ministry and saying, you know what? We just need to go deeper. We need to go deeper. We need to have more expository preaching. We got we to go down deep. And I'm not against going down deep. But my point is, if that's all we're doing is going down deep and we don't go wide, we're in trouble. I remember one time somebody said that only 5% of the people actually apply what they hear on Sunday morning. That can be very discouraging for a pastor. I think... How many times have we sat through sermon after sermon or Bible study or devotional and we come away saying that was good stuff, but nothing's changed. Nothing's been transformed. Nothing's been different. And I look at these guys and they could quote, they quoted scripture with Herod and said, oh yeah, the prophet says he's going to be born here. It's going to be in Bethlehem. Well, had they not heard what the shepherds had said? Maybe, maybe they were too, uh, they just discounted it because they were shepherds. But who knows? But these guys knew it, but their lives hadn't changed. And how many of us, when's the last time? You know, I, I'm guilty of this myself because being a pastor, if I'll sit under somebody else's teaching, I'm more, uh, I'm more analytical about what they're saying rather than really saying, God, what are you saying to me? Or, or you're, you're busy, what I call scoop, scoop shovel Christianity, where you're shoveling it over to your wife or to somebody behind you because, oh, they really need to hear that. You know? Well, maybe you need to hear that. So, so I, I think this is really a critical component here of this story. Here's number four. We must learn how to relate to Jesus as our king. I, I alluded to it earlier. And, and we can look again at the Magi as a model, which is fascinating to me because these guys were probably pagans. But they knew what they're supposed to do when they were in the presence of a king. Do we know what we're supposed to do when we're in the presence of our king? So here's what they did. First of all, they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. Have you ever bowed down before Jesus? I mean, bowed down literally. You know what would be fascinating? This Christmas, if you and your family, as you were sitting around the tree getting ready to open your gifts, that you would take time to bow down to a king. I don't know what that would look like. Maybe everybody in the family could be on their knees before God, before you open those gifts to realize that the greatest gift that was ever given is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Maybe we need to learn how to bow down. I, I know it, historically for me, one of the things that I've, I've tried to learn to do, and I remember doing this back in my church in Phoenix where there would be one day a week where I would go and be alone with, with the Lord and I would get up on the stage and I would lay flat on my face before God and I would have a great time of prayer before the Lord, reminding myself again that I am in the presence of an almighty king. You know, we love it as a savior. We love him as our advocate. We love him as our best friend. We love him as, because of his unconditional love. But we love Jesus as our king. Bow down and worship him. That's what the Magi did. You know what the second thing they did? They brought the best gifts to him. We must bring our best gifts to him. He deserves it. And when he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. He's saying, what I want is your best. I want all of you. And sometimes I think our king gets the leftovers. You ever notice that? He doesn't always get our best. He doesn't get our best time. He doesn't get our best talents. And he doesn't get our best treasures. If he's king, he deserves the very best. Whatever we do in the name of the king, it should be done with excellence. He gave us a priceless gift. Don't you think he deserves the best? What do you think? (coughs) Thirdly, what the Magi did, when the pressure of the world wants us to conform to its desires, we need to learn how to run the other way. See, what these magi were smart enough to do is that when God appeared to them in a dream, they were sharp enough to realize that what Herod wanted to do was a ruthless thing. And by God's grace, they decide, you know what? We're not going to go tell Herod where this baby is. We're out of here. We're out of here. And I I think about how many times in our lives where we're hearing these voices in our culture, in the media, all these things that say, this is the way you need to be. This is how you need to conform. This is how you need to believe. And we become so secularized. And so we we hear all these voices telling us to do these things. When are we going to be smart enough to say, I'm done hearing that stuff. I want to listen to God because he's my king. Right? And these guys were smart enough to say, no, what? We're not listening to Herod. We're going to listen to God. My question to us this morning, who are we listening to? Who's speaking to us? Who's telling us? And who are we going to obey? Who are we going to listen to? Who's going to rule our lives? Is it going to be the secular world and humanism that's around us and all the junk that's going on in our lives? Or is it going to be Almighty God telling us what to do? That's when we treat him like a king because now he's ruling our lives. Does that work for you? Hope it does. Here's number five. This is a sticker that's been you've seen on bumpers, but it's still an important thing that wise men still seek him. You know what I love about these guys? They're just like the shepherds. The shepherds get this angel that appears to them, and they decide, you know, let's go find out if this is, this is true. Let's validate this. Let's not just walk off and say, oh, this is all a bunch of hocus pocus. This is a bunch of nonsense. We're not going to go there. Or my intellect will not allow me to go there because it's too weird, it's too crazy, it's, I, I can't really believe this. These were some of the smartest men on the planet at the time. These guys are well-educated guys. What did they do? They traveled miles and miles and miles to test out the validation of what they thought they heard. That's what I love about these guys. And I guess the application here is that you don't have to be a stupid, ignorant person to follow Christ. 
You don't throw away your intellect to follow Jesus. I hear a lot of people say, oh, this faith stuff. You know, I just don't know I can handle the faith stuff. Well, man, you step out of your house every day in faith. You drive down the street every day in faith. You turn the light switch on, you're stepping out in faith. Faith is something that we all are living under and with every single day. So why not put your faith in something that is so real, and if you don't check it out and don't validate it, you're foolish. These guys were smart enough to say, listen, yeah, we're smart guys, but if this is reality, if this guy's really a king, then we got to check it out. And they did. My question to you, are you seeking him this morning? Scripture says, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. Ask and it shall be given to you. I believe if you're an honest seeker, you're going to see a lot of validation. You're going to see that what we're following here, what we claim to follow here in this church is reality. It's true. It's not just a story. It's not just a novel. I'm going to get wound up here because I'm going to go into Thursday night here before I'm too long with uh, Christmas Eve. So let me, let me give you some closing questions like I always do. Are there some relevant ways to connect with people who you know to present the good news? What, are you, what gets you up in the morning? What are you passionate about? What, what, what's on your heart? Chances are there's a lot of folks that you know in your neighborhood, at work, people that, people that you've met. They're perhaps in a club or in some kind of a thing where you know, you know what? I have that same passion. Maybe I can either infiltrate that or I can, you know, bring or start a group, a quilting group or whatever it might be. How does God want to use you? Have you ever thought about this? Are there some relevant ways? I know we had some guys that, that love to go camping at our, our church. And we, a bunch of guys took a bunch of guys and went camping. And, they, and it was a father-son deal. And so a lot of their pagan neighbors would go along and they would go camping together. It was a great opportunity to have sit around a campfire and share something about their faith. There are ways, folks, we just don't get it. And sometimes we have to learn how to be intentional and to realize that God gave us these passions to be more relevant to folks that are around us. I'm getting wound up. Let me go to number two. How well do you apply the truths that you're learning from God's word from week to week? How are you doing with it? I have to really be careful when I sit in a church service or when I sit in a Bible study because being a pastor, it's so easy to just become a critical person. And I have to intentionally sit down and say, God, what do you have to say to me? This isn't about their style or their approach. This isn't about how deep they go, God. What do you have for me? Because, God, I don't want to leave here the same guy that came in. Is that your approach to Sunday morning? Is that your approach to Bible study? You see, if that's all we're going to do is get more and more knowledge, knowledge does not necessarily mean that we're mature people in Christ. Amen? It doesn't. I mean, it's great to have all of that knowledge, but if it's not changing my life, we're wasting our time. We're wasting God's time. We're nothing better than those Pharisees and Sadducees who knew it all, but were too doggone arrogant and prideful to apply it to their own life. Here's the third thought. When's the last time you bowed down to King Jesus? When's the last time where you, you just had a, a, a come to Jesus moment and, and you really, instead of thinking about him as a savior and an advocate and a friend and a buddy, somebody who loves me unconditionally, which are all totally true. But when's the last time you came into his presence and you felt like, woo, I'm in the presence of royalty. 
I, I, I'm in the presence of the king of kings. And every someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And I take this for granted. I need to be in the presence of the king. When's the last time you bowed down and just laid yourself before this king and offered your undivided attention and worship? Here's the last thought. This is really an interesting one. If you were to give a gift to Jesus this Christmas, what would it be? What would it be? It would be fascinating. I'd like to do this with my family this year. Uh, family's coming up finally for this year to, to Prescott, which would be fun for us family to get together. But before we open any gifts, I would like to go around the room and say, what do you want to give to Jesus this year? You ever thought about that? We talk about what we're going to give our kids or our husband, our spouse, or family members, and what maybe we're going to get in terms of a gift or whatever. But have you ever thought, what if there was one gift I want to give to Jesus this year, what would it be? Would it be your best? Would it be gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What would it be? I challenge you to think about that. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for these guys. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know they were smart enough to check it out. God, if there's somebody here this morning that doubts all of this stuff about Christmas, God, I hope that they're smart enough to check it out because it's true. I thank you for these guys who were probably as pagan as could be into sorcery and astrology, but had enough sense to bow down to you as a king and to bring their very best. God, help us to be the same way. Forgive us those days where we take you for granted. Remind us again that our journey is with a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Touch our hearts today, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.